Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Good morning. Again, my name is Stephen. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here. I'm uh, so excited to have you all here. Um, we, uh, we read the word. And the reason that we say this is the word of the Lord and thanks be to God is we, we submit ourselves to God's word. Um, it is our highest authority. It is perfect. It is inerrant. It, is, it gives us all that we need for life and godliness. So we submit ourselves to God's word uh, as we come to worship. We, we, uh, we're, when we're called to worship, we often read scripture uh, because we are coming and sitting under uh, God's word uh, for teaching. So thank you, Daphne, uh, for doing that. Honesty time. How many adults try to touch their tongue to their nose. Oh, come on, you got a mask on. You, everybody knows you tried. Um, our values here at uh, City on a Hill are the gospel, community, and mission. The gospel is the good news that Jesus gave his life for us, that he uh, went to the cross to pay for our sins so that we could have a relationship restored with God. And so if you've not entered into that relationship, we would love to talk with you about what it looks like for you uh, to follow and trust Jesus. Secondly, community, God created us for relationships. And so uh, he helps us have relationships centered around Jesus that help us flourish and become the people that God has called us to be. So if you're not connected to a community group, be sure to fill out a connect card, a connect card. You'll see a QR code on the screen. You can scan that um, and we'll get you connected to a uh, community group. If this is your first time with us today, we'd love to give you a free gift. We have a, a gift card to Braska Coffee Shop right around the corner that we'll send you as well as, as a free book. Um, and then lastly, mission. Mission is uh, that the good news is just too good to keep to ourselves. So the, we live our lives in a certain way that the way that we live our lives and the words that we tell, tell of the good news of Jesus so that others can enjoy him. A few announcements before we jump into the word this morning. Um, coming up, not this week, but week after next is Holy Week. So we start uh, the march toward Easter. And so we're gonna be having an online Good Friday service with all of our City on a Hill Network churches on Friday April 2nd at both 6.30 and 8 o'clock. So if you've got little kids and it's kind of that 6.30 time frame's hard, be sure to tune in at 8 o'clock. Or if you're just, you're just a night owl and you're kind of a vampire and want to do it later, that's fine too. Um, then coming up on Sunday, uh, April 4th, um, we are going to have an in-person Easter gathering. And so this in-person gathering is going to be outside on the front lawn. And this is also the first of our weekly in-person services. So starting on April 4th, we are meeting every single week in person. So we would love for you to be a part of that. And then lastly, we have men's and women's retreats coming up in May. We'll be sure to get the dates uh, uh, virtually. There's going to be virtual uh, most likely. We'll get the dates to you as well. Uh, this morning, we're continuing our series on the life of David. We're going to be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 7. Big thank you to Matt Walter for leading us last week, for teaching us. He did an awesome job leading us to the throne of God, talking about worship. And so what we've been looking at at the life of David, it's been a little different than typically how we approach a book of the Bible. Bible. Typically, we start at one end and march our way to the other end, but we were kind of zooming in on David's life. And uh, we get this picture last week of what it looks like for us to worship, wholeheartedly worship God, enjoying his presence as his people. And so at this point in redemptive history, in this point in David's history, he has ascended the throne. He is in chapter five, he became the king. He was uh, enthroned on, 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 the, on the throne. Um, he's just uh, beginning here in chapter seven. There's been some time that has elapsed between chapter six and chapter seven. David has been incredibly successful. He's done really, really well for himself. 
You know, God had done a lot to get him there. God had put him in that place. But David took full advantage of the opportunity that he had been given. Uh, And he's only the second king in Israel's history. So there's not a lot to compare him against. Saul was not exactly a good king. And so if you're entering into a job, you kind of hope the person that was before you did a bad job, right? You kind of hope like, you know, you don't want everybody to be talking about how great of an employee Jeremy was. Like you want to know that you're going to be better than that guy. It's kind of like, you know, how Cam Newton had to follow up Tom Brady. No matter who it was, everybody's going to be thinking about Tom Brady. You kind of want the guy who was before you to do a bad job. So Saul did a bad job. David does a really, really good job. He's doing so well that he's been able to bring rest to the people. It says in verse one, which we didn't read, now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. So David was able to do something that no other king, no other judge, no other prophet in Israel's history, no other leader had been able to do. They've been fighting with other nations their entire existence, and God gives them peace through the work of David. He is the guy. Everybody loves David. He is the golden boy. If he lived in our time, he would be doing interviews. He'd be on magazine covers. They would give him a TED talk. They they would, he would be the guy everybody would go to in order to learn how he was so successful. You know, it makes me think of Steve Jobs, who back in 1986 was, was fired from Apple. And then in 1997 was hired back at Apple to rescue the company. And from there forward, everyone looked at Steve Jobs as the guy you go to for innovation. David is doing really, really well. He's resting. He's settling in. And he didn't get to where he got because he was inept. He was a very skilled person. He made the most of the opportunities that he had been given. He would fit perfect in Boston. He would fit perfect in our city. He was an incredibly ambitious person and his ambition led him to great success and to great wealth. In verse two, we see that the king said to Nathan the prophet, now now see now, I dwell in a house of cedar. David's kind of boasting here about his success. This would be kind of like a house made with the most expensive material. So imagine someone saying, I live in a brand new flat with all the amenities up on Beacon Hill. Like I live in the nicest place possible with all the bells and whistles. His ambition has gotten him to a place of great success. And much like David, Boston is full of truly ambitious people. You don't live here unless you have ambition. And it can be really, really cutthroat when it comes to jobs, when it comes to residencies, when it comes to programs, when it comes to opportunities before us. And so it puts a lot of pressure on our shoulders to have the right career, to make money, to have a family, to look successful. Now, the idea of ambition is not all bad. God created us to be ambitious because God is a creative God. We are creative people made in his image. And so we, we are built to improve upon things. We're, we're built to uh, cultivate the world that we live in. But because sin has broken and disordered everything, ambition is killing us. It becomes a weight that sits on our shoulders to prove ourselves, to validate ourselves, because what we say if we don't have success is that if I don't have that, and I'll let you fill in the blank, I'm nobody. If I don't have that, I'm not enough. And what ambition does is it disorders all of our relationships. It disorders our relationship to God. It disorders our relationship to others and even disorders our relationship to ourselves. You know, COVID slowed us down a good bit, but is anybody starting to get busy again now that things are opening up? It seems like there are so many 
relationships we've got to reform. There's so much work pressure. There's so much pressure to get outside and enjoy our city. You know, some, some people call this hurry sickness, this feeling in the pit of our stomach that we're always constantly in a hurry. And so what ambition can do is it can disorder good things and rack us with anxiety and build pressure and expectation and this sense of hurry. Or as John Ortberg says, hurry is not just a disordered schedule. Hurry is a disordered heart. I think this is part of David's problem, but I also think part of David's problem is he's doing a good thing for the wrong reasons. Ambition can lead us to do good things for the wrong reasons. Because what we can do is we can do good things and make them all about us, all about me. And this is what David's doing here. He wants to build a temple for the Lord, but why does he want to build a temple? See, I think the way that he sees God and God's plan for him is out of order, almost like he's doing God a favor and hopes that God would do him a favor down the road. But God has another idea. See, what we see this morning, what we're going to unpack is that God's plans are always better than your plans. God's plans are always better than your plans. And this speaks into the idea of ambition. So the first point we're going to look at today is the fact that David's ambition was too small. David's ambition is too small. Now, it sounds crazy because I'm just talking about him being this crazy, ambitious person and that his ambition is crippling him like it cripples all of us. But his ambition is actually too low. You would think his problem would be that he had too much ambition. But as C.S. Lewis said over a half century ago, he said that we think too small. We, We can't imagine the infinite joy that God promises. And he compares this to settling for making mud pies when we could have a vacation at sea. Our ambition is too small. In verse two, we see that David has built a house for himself. He's settling in um, and he's finally able to rest. He has no need. And I think some of us imagine that. We're like, man, once I get all the student loans paid off, once I get settled, once I get into a home, once I have a family, and once I put some money away for retirement, I'm gonna start giving back to others. I'm gonna pay all of that back. I'm gonna be generous. And we even do that with the Lord. David here is living in a cedar house and God is living in a tent. He's probably a little embarrassed about this. We see kind of some background here as Matt began to unpack last week is that God had instructed Moses all the way back in Exodus to build a tabernacle or a tent for the Ark of the Covenant, which was the presence of God with his people. It's where God's presence would reside. And so as Matt described, when it, wherever the people went, God went. Wherever he went, the tent or the tabernacle went. They were a mobile people, so this made sense. And so you can imagine a tent that has been used for, people, for the high priest to go before the presence of God and sacrifice animals for a couple hundred years that has to constantly be cleaned of blood, that is constantly probably being sewn back together. It's constantly, you can imagine it was probably in, the tent itself was probably in rough shape. And David's thinking, you know what? I can't live in this nice house while God lives outside in a tent. That's rather rude of me. And so in verse three, Nathan hears all of this and He gets excited. Nathan's a prophet. We'll talk about him more in a couple of weeks. Um, And and he sees all of this and he's like, hey, go ahead. You should definitely do this. Go and, and do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. I can imagine Nathan's temptation. If somebody were to walk up to me off the street and said, hey, Stephen, here's $10 million. Go build a facility for your church. 
Go do all that is in your heart. Like I would be very tempted to say, you know what? Go and do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. I'll be very tempted to do that. But it would be foolish of me not to say, hey, wait a minute. Why are you giving me this money? What is, what's behind this? Are there some strings attached to this? Does God actually really want this? What are David's motives here? See, why did David's ambition seem to fall short? It was actually really common for kings in the ancient world to build a temple for their gods. And they would do so as a, as a, a symbol of thankfulness for, for that God blessing them. And it was kind of a, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. So I'm going to build you a nice temple in hopes that you continue to bless me. And that's what religion really is. Man-made religion is I will do in hopes that I get blessing in return. The more that I do, the more that I get. See, what David's doing here is he's saying, hey, Lord, I'm going to do something for you. I'm going to do something for you with the string attached that you're going to do something for me. And so what kings would do is they would have the big, they'd try to build the biggest army and have the best palace and the biggest temple to show that their God was best and show how successful they actually were. See, our ambition and our plans look a lot like that because we tie blessing to success. We say, you know what, if I am materially blessed, then God must be for me. But the inverse of that is that if I'm not materially materially blessed, then maybe God's not. That's not the gospel. See, ambition turns all of life into a set of transactions, a set of transactions that are meant to get us what we want. So we look at every opportunity before us and ask, the right, we say the right thing to do is just simply what will get me ahead. It turns our relationships with other people into transactions because we look at someone else and say, can this person help me grow? Can they help me get ahead? Can they help get me where I want to be? And we don't just do that with work. We do that with romantic relationships too. We often say, will this person give me the life I've always wanted? And we do it to God. If I do the right things, God will give me what I want. Now, is ambition wrong? No. Is, were all of David's desires completely shot through with ill motive? Probably not. Could God have been worshipped through this temple? Absolutely. But in verse 4, God shows up and he talks to Nathan and he says, stop David. Stop David from going after this. God is making a point here. He makes the point. He's saying, I am not a God who is best among a group of competing gods. I'm not the best among mostly equal options. He is saying, I am completely other. I am completely holy. And you cannot approach me like that. We cannot approach God as a means to an end because that vision is too low. See, what God wants and what in David's life and what he wants for us is he wants our hearts and he wants something so much better for us. God wants way more for you than for you to crush it at your job. He wants way more for you than to seek ultimate fulfillment in a relationship or even to do good things for him. He wants real tangible relationship with you where you tap into a deep well of joy. And that's why our second idea is that God's ambition is so much bigger than yours. God's ambition is so much bigger. In verse four, we see that God tells Nathan to tell David. That sounds a little bit like how third graders talk when they're mad at each other. Will you tell my friend that I said this? That's not what's going on here. This is Nathan's job. 
Nathan's a prophet. And what he tells Nathan to tell David is, David, you're not gonna build a house for me. I'm gonna build a house for you. And Nathan and David's, or David and God's ideas of a house were completely different. David's thinking temple, God is thinking dynasty. Not that David would just be the king and throne for a generation, but that David's throne, his, his kingdom would last forever. In this moment, he's making a covenant with David. God's ambition rests in a covenant. And so what is a covenant? Basically, a covenant is a set of promises, a set of promises to act a certain way or not act a certain way between two people. And so in the Bible, it's almost like God's job description. God is saying, here's what I'm going to do for you. Here's what I am going to do. And so he's binding himself to these people. He's binding himself relationally to them. And as you look at the, 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 the covenants in the Old Testament, you see really two components every time you see a covenant. There are several, and they kind of stack up on top of each other. You see these two things. You see presence and you see grace. You see presence and you see grace. Basically, a covenant is saying, I'm with you and I'm for you. I'm with you and I'm for you. And so God's activity toward David is rooted in God's gracious activity in the past. It's rooted in God's activity toward Abraham, toward Noah, toward Moses. In verse six, he says, I've not lived in a house since the days of Egypt to this day. He's saying, I was faithful to Moses. I was with Moses. It says in verse seven, he said, where they went, I went. He was completely for them. Verses 10 and 11, I gave them and I'm going to give my people a place of rest. See, a covenant gives hope that God has been faithful in the past and therefore he's gonna be faithful in the future. There's a reason that the people constantly said the words, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who delivered us from Egypt. They were remembering God's covenant faithfulness and saying, he's gonna do it again. He's going to be for us. And so David rests on the promises of God that God has given to him as a continuation of God's promises to call the people who are gonna bless all people. And what he's saying is God's not done yet. He's still with you and he's still for you. Our God is with us. Tim Keller says it's almost as if God is saying, I'm the, God, I'm the kind of God who actually lives with my people. My people were wandering, I wandered. What my people experience, I experience. If, I, if my people still do not have fixedness and establishment and security, then I don't have it either. God is not content to be boxed into a building. But notice what God does for David. He's not just with David, he's for David. Verse 11, he says he's gonna give him continued rest and peace. And in verses 12 and 13, he says, I'm gonna bless your offspring in such a way that your son is going to be king and he will build a temple for me. We'll talk more about that later. And he says, I'm gonna establish this throne forever. Notice something about this passage. How many times does God say, I will? He says, I will do something eight times. How many times does it say David will? Zero. And that is the picture of grace. That's the heart of Christianity. And that's what makes it different than any other set of beliefs. Because every other set of beliefs is this. I will build a house for you, God. I will build a good life for you, God. I will do the right things for you, God. 
and you'll bless me. But Christianity is this, is that God builds the house and we don't do anything. He's not for David because David is just so awesome. In verse eight, he lifts up David from being a shepherd to being a king. That's a picture of grace. In verse 14, he says, I'm gonna bless your son. I'm gonna be a father to him. And when he sins and he will sin like all of us sin, I'm not gonna remove my love from him like I did Saul. My love for him is steadfast. And this is gonna go beyond you forever. In verses 15 and 16, these, these verses honestly change everything. The rest of the Bible is honestly read in light of these verses that there is a king who is coming, who's making all things right. And his throne is going to last forever. Amen. But something seems off. Something seems off about this because if you keep reading through the biblical story, here's what you begin to see. Solomon's sin, one generation later, splits the kingdom. Within 400 years, the temple that Solomon builds is torn to the ground. Within 400 years, the people are in exile in Babylon. The royal line seems to end. There's no Davidic king sitting on the throne of national Israel today. So the question here is, did God fail? Did God's promises fail? And at any given moment in isolation, it probably felt like it. For nearly a thousand years, if a person was simply looking at today and remembering the promises of God and not seeing them come to fruition, they probably thought, you know what? It feels like God has let us down. And we feel that too when we simply look at the circumstances of today. When we simply look at what's going on right now, we often think, you know what? I really struggle to believe that God loves me today. But when we remember the covenant that God has making, made with us, remember this, God never fails. He never fails. He is always with us and he is always for those that he loved. And so what, here's what starts to happen. The Old Testament prophets, what they begin to do is they begin to see what's happening here in 2 Samuel 7. It's not just about David, but that there's a better king coming one day. And so this passage, as John Piper describes it, it's like a telescope that's been pushed together, that's been collapsed. And so the near events and the far events seem like they're right there together, but they began to look through that telescope toward a day to come. In Amos chapter nine, we hear about the restoration of David's house. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Hosea 3, 5, this is after a time without a king. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return from exile and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. And then Isaiah 9, which is probably more familiar with you. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. All of these promises are pointing forward to something better. 
They're all pointing forward to this coming king. And so all of our hopes and all of our longings are pointing toward that king as well. Because a thousand years after what we see written here in 2 Samuel 7, the angel of the Lord said to a scared teenage virgin these words, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that there will be a king who reigns forever. In Hebrews chapter four, we see that we have a high priest who is also a king who comes and empathizes with everything that it means to be human. He is with us in our wandering. He's with us in our struggle. He's with us in our loneliness. He's for us, giving us grace, reigning over us as king, paying for our sins and our iniquities by his steadfast love. My question for you is, don't you want that more than you want your own plans? Don't you want that more than you want to be in control and and to give into your own ambition? We all want that. And here in in the last part, we see David's response, the only proper response. I love David's response. I love here in verse 18, it says that David goes and he sits before the Lord. He just sits before him. I would love when my plans get wrecked that I would just go sit before God. Because when my plans get wrecked, I tend to vent. I tend to be frustrated. I, I tend to complain. I don't go just sit before God. I need to be as holy as David. He, we see he draws before God, believing he's his good father. He wants his best. He, he gives his plans over to him. Verses 18 through 20, he says, who am I? See, the gospel helps us see ourselves and God rightly. Verses 21 through 24, David's eyes are drawn back to God. He says, you are great, O Lord. Verses 25 through 29, we see that his ambition is rescued. He's now living in light of the promises of the Lord. He begins to apply the promises of God. And the great promise we have as followers of Jesus is the gospel, that our sins have been forgiven. And so there are four questions that we can ask ourselves like David here when it comes to applying the promises of God to our lives. The first question is remembering who God is, bringing our lives before him and remembering who he is. He is the good and holy God who paid for our sins. What has he done? Jesus went to the cross for us. Who am I because of Jesus? I am, if I have trusted Jesus, I am now a redeemed child of God. And now how do I live because of those promises, because of Jesus? What happens is it begins, the gospel begins to reorder our lives around the promises of God. It renews them, it redeems them, it causes us to live ambitious lives, not just for our own glory, but for the glory of God in all things. So what promises do you need to believe and act on today? Do you need to believe and act on the promise that God gives rest? Maybe you have anxiousness in your soul and it's like you're constantly running on that hamster wheel. Rest before the Lord. Remember, he's the one who's in control of all things. Maybe you doubt God's presence. Remember that God is the one who came and tabernacled among us. 
Maybe you wanna be in control of your own life or there's some sin in your life you're just hanging on to and, and you don't wanna give control. Remember that Jesus is your good king. And lastly, remember that Jesus is the savior of your sins. If you've not trusted the Lord, we'd love to talk with you after the service about what it looks like to trust Jesus. Let us be a people who give our ambition over because God has better plans than we could possibly have. Let's pray. Let's pray.